Hi, I'm Agnes Kurtzels. I am Whitney Winter. And my name is Claire Horning. And this is the Acknowledge Podcast. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, cover crops and how they affect the environment long term. Um, To help with this topic, I had gone to Northeast Community College and I talked with a professor there named Robert Noonan. Uh, He actually used to be a professor for me there. And I'm going to go ahead and let him introduce himself to you guys. Okay. Well, Agnes, again, it's really nice to see you. It's been a while. Uh, My name, again, like Agnes said, is Robert Noonan. I uh, teach agronomy classes here at Northeast Community College and have for eight years. It is a great joy to work with students such as Agnes and just all of the students, uh, the 300 plus students we have here. Uh, I've also just completed my 41st year of farming and uh, I've raised seed corn, uh, soybeans, and uh, and so have a lot of experience with agriculture and uh, just am glad to be able to share that with students. Uh, Well, today we are going to talk about um, cover crops. Uh, I know in classes we talked a lot about that, yep. so um, do you want to go more into detail? Yeah, and uh, Agnes, as I remember, you were part of a research project that I uh, worked on with Ohio State University where you guys got to do some activities out in yep. the cover crop field, and that was, you guys did a really good job, I <laughs> So yeah, uh, I would, okay, in a way they're a newer management practice, but they actually are a practice that you go back 100 to 150 years ago that farmers used, it was commonplace. And so uh, cover crops are really good at maintaining and even improving soil health. Uh, Some of the factors we look at when we're talking about soil health have to do with uh, erosion, have to do with organic matter, soil organic matter content, have to do with uh, permeability of soil, the ability for the water to be able to flow through and then stay in place in that soil for for plants to use in the future. Uh, We're also talking about microbial activity and cover crops, uh, microbial activity, I should say a little more, which is very important for converting uh, inorganic compounds or even organic compounds into uh, nutrients that the plants are able to use. And uh, cover crops are able to really help improve all of those factors. Uh, One of the other big players, uh, one of the big, big uh, factors that cover crops are good at is also taking carbon out of the atmosphere, something called carbon sequestration. And uh, in uh, the day we live in with the global warming, we have increasing amounts of uh, CO2 into our atmosphere. And the more we grow cover crops, the more uh, root mass we end up having in those soils. 58% of that root mass is carbon. And so so there's just so many good reasons uh, why we would want to grow cover crops. So have you noticed it as like a trend as more people are doing it? Yeah, I have. Especially uh, down in my area, down in northern Platte County, uh, it is really taking off. It took a few years, and uh, there'd be a couple of farmers planting maybe a field here and there. And in my area, it's probably right around 35% of farmers are planting cover crops, but with the slow increase. Uh, there's areas, some areas of Nebraska, where it's hilly, or maybe they have sandy soils. It's even taking off more so. And it, it's really good to see that because those uh, on the hilly uh, soils, they have issues with erosion, as, as you would suspect they would. And uh, just all of that plant mass, that uh, plant cover, 
uh, over the soil, the root mass that's left over when we plant our row crop into that cover crop just helps prevent any kind of water erosion uh, in those sandier soils. It, it improves something called soil structure, which is just like, uh, you know, just this, uh, I'm trying to think of a simple way to describe <laughs> it, uh, but it's just like the soil, everything stays in place within that soil, and that, that makes for a healthy soil. And so, yeah, I think farmers are starting to see a lot of the benefits uh, with planting cover crops. And uh, so, yeah, it is increasing. I wish it would increase faster, you know, more quickly, but it is moving yeah. in the right direction. I know I noticed uh, this past summer, or I guess fall, right after harvest, a couple more farmers around my area in Cedar County was starting to use cover crops yep. and use um, winter wheat and having it grow through the winter. Yeah, yeah, and one of the big benefits, uh, you know, I know you were you were an animal science major here, right? Yeah. Okay, uh, one of the really big benefits with cover crops is you can graze them as well, both in the fall and the spring. Mm -hmm. And so for livestock producers, it can be another uh, cheap source and good source of uh, animal nutrition as well. So, um, do you see a lot of people like um, like? Failing it for their livestock after yeah harvest? yeah absolutely or is it just for grazing no 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 it, it works you can you can uh, hay it as well and, and that works really well to do that uh, uh, there's uh, oh cereal rye will work uh, uh, oats a lot of people will grow oats and then they'll bale that uh, so it all it all depends what your uh, operation uh, your livestock operation uh, is about um, but there are uh, uh, <laughs> oh, uh, triticale is another good one that you can uh, plant as well as far as uh, harvesting it for hay. You can take those out in April, uh, maybe even the end of March, depending how warm the spring is. One thing about oats, they will die out in the, uh, if it gets cold enough. So, you know, if you're going to hay oats, you probably want to plant them as early as possible. So like if you get any beans out in September, that's when you would want to do that. If the, 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 the thing that's kind of cool about cover crops too is uh, there's a lot of flexibility in there. And so let's just say that those oats just don't grow that much. Just put the cattle out there and let them graze. And uh, also uh, in the springtime, there's a lot of farmers who will uh, graze cereal rye or winter wheat or whatever and just let it, uh, uh, let the cattle out there, even uh, right up until when they're going to plant. Uh, one of the best things about cover crops is weed suppression. So as everybody knows, we are having uh, super weeds. I mean, all over the place. Our herbicides are becoming less and less useful. The weeds are becoming more and more resistant. And when you have uh, cover crops, and especially some of these grass cover crops like cereal rye, uh, you kill that off in April, uh, and uh, that crop residue prevents the sunlight from really hitting the soil. With most weeds, you need to have uh, sunlight hitting that surface in order for that germination to happen. And uh, I know with some of my, especially my soybean fields, uh, where I would I plant uh, the uh, soybeans right into that uh, cereal rye that had been uh, killed maybe two weeks before, uh, and you get this beautiful cover over that soil, and uh, it, the weed pressure is so much less. I don't have percentages for you you know, right offhand, but uh, I'm, I am positive it was 30, 40, 50 percent less uh, weed pressure. The one thing about that too, though, if you, uh, if you let your 
uh, cover crop get fairly tall and when you plant your soybeans into uh, that cover crop, you can, it takes a while for those beans to kind of emerge out of that uh, crop residue or that uh, cover crop residue that's left over. And it takes a little bit of getting used to that because you think, you know, it's July 1st and you can hardly see your soybeans out there, but then all of a sudden they explode. <laughs> and uh, and you get this beautiful crop of uh, beans with a lot less weed pressure and uh, healthier soil and uh, more uh, water retention in the soil, more water availability for the plants. And so it uh, it probably takes a good uh, four to five, maybe six years to see uh, definite improvement in the soil health factors. But... Um, if you combine no-till with cover crops, you start seeing that benefit sooner. And uh, you, I, I have seen so many examples now who, of uh, farmers who have uh, planted cover crops and no-till, and after 10 to 15 years, they've doubled the soil organic matter percentages. Uh, they, uh, the uh, amount of uh, irrigation water they have to apply starts coming down because there's so much water has been held in that soil from you know spring or the winter snows or whatever it was and uh the benefits really start to multiply after about year number five six seven and you just see the slow steady uh, increase in yield and uh and so many other factors too so so you think um like they're getting more um global warming and less water yeah. do you think uh overall just everybody in the United States could benefit from it? I think, all, uh, yes. <laughs> I actually saw a video the other day down in Arizona in a, it wasn't quite desert, it was almost desert, where they've been using cover crops to uh, basically kind of restore, reclaim the environment uh, away from the desert. Uh, desertification is a problem around the world. And one thing that it's, it looks like, uh, or what they're finding out is, if we can get, vegetation growing in some of these areas, just that uh, cycle of evapotranspiration, you know, the water coming through the roots up and uh, moistening the atmosphere, it just seems to bring more rain. It seems to bring uh, more water uh, that's held in the soil. And if you can get something green growing, uh, especially with roots uh, all year round, live roots all year round, you can you can fight against some of those uh, those effects of uh, climate change. Uh, mentioned before about how we can actually store carbon in our fields uh, just through planting cover crops. Uh, again, if, if you till, you tend to break up those roots and you tend to uh, break, you tend to release that carbon back into the atmosphere. And that's one reason no-till is so important to do along with cover crops. And, uh, you know, they keep talking about carbon credits that uh, our government might be handing out to in the future. Uh, farmers can cash in on that. Um, one of the things that I'd like to talk about is uh, uh, probably assistance both in the technical knowledge of growing cover crops or managing cover crops, yeah. and then with the financial assistance that different governmental agencies uh, offer. So uh, the uh, Lower Elkhorn NRD, which I'm a board member uh, with, with that group, we offer both... Uh, to you know, kind of direct farmers on how to grow these cover crops on what what works well uh, for different areas. But then 
probably the best thing that most farmers would be interested in is we offer some financial help with this. And so uh, the first year uh, a, a farmer might be interested in growing cover crops, he should contact his local NRD to see what kind of financial support they offer. Uh, we at the Lower Elkhorn NRD offer that first year, I mean, we, we offer a certain amount of money that basically would pay for the seed and maybe part of the application as well. Uh, NRCS also works with uh, seed selection, uh, you know, just application rates, uh, and they do a really good job as well. The one thing that NRCS, they help financially, but they generally, it takes a year to get into that program, that specific program having to do with the, uh, the equip program that they offer. But a lot of farmers are taking advantage of that, and, uh, and it's just a good way uh, to test the waters without uh, having some uh, poor financial uh, consequence. And so, uh, in it, also UNL, uh, Purdue University, there's a lot of universities. Penn State has a lot of information as far as how to grow these cover crops as well. Uh, your local uh, county extension agency will also likely have a lot of information as well. And you can also just call me or email me at the college here too, and I would be happy to help. Um, uh, there's a guy that just retired recently from NRCS. Uh, he was in the Stanton uh, County office uh, also, who's just, an, he is an amazing expert. And, but again, we have these uh, people in place, and you can call any of these agencies, and they should be able to help you, both with the technical and the financial side of this. So with those programs, do you have to be a member of, like, that, I guess, uh, with Committee. the <laughs> we also with uh, with the uh, NRD programs, you would need to have your land within uh, that the district boundaries of that specific NRD, and so. Uh, but again, most of their programs are very easy uh, to to um, get into. Also, the paperwork paperwork requirements gen tend uh, tend to be very uh, small compared to NRCS, which generally there's pages and pages and pages to fill out. But again, they, NRCS has such great technical uh, and management uh, information that goes along with that as well that they're good people to talk to about this. And so, yeah, so I recommend that uh, farmers can uh, get into this without the financial risk associated with it. Uh, managing cover crops is, can be a tricky game. Uh, I, I found out a few years back, um, I, so I grow seed corn, and seed corn, for any, any of you who don't know how touchy seed corn is, it's like a very weak, uh, there's not a lot of roots on it, uh, it's just like this really, really weak, sickly looking plant. And <laughs> one thing I found out, which damaged my seed corn crop that year, was you can't plant cereal rye, or it's not a good idea to plant cereal rye before, uh, before corn in general, but especially before seed corn. Uh, I had a horrible stand, and uh, the reason why I, that happened to me is uh, rye produces uh, allelopathic compounds, or toxic compounds. It's like a herbicide for grasses, and corn, being a grass, uh, will, can be harmed. Okay, that, the thing is, is that herbicide, uh, that allelopathic compound tends to break down fairly quickly if the soils are warm. 
But this year, when I was, uh, I had planted this cover crop, I had this beautiful stand of rye, I sprayed it, and uh, it, the soils were very cool, and they continued to be cool so that uh, that herbicide type of compound didn't break down and it harmed my seed corn in a big way. And so that's, that's just one example I want to give you that there are some management things you need to know about in order to reap the benefits, which can be really great. Uh, biggest benefit is probably the increase in soil organic matter. And what, what that will do over time is that will, that will increase your uh, yield. And uh, it's one of the biggest factors with soil health and in water retention. And uh, just in making that soil resilient for uh, that plant that you're growing. And so, uh, so you know, just make sure you check in with people who've done this for a number of years. If you have neighbors who've grown cover crops for a number of years, they're also a really good uh, person because they, it's kind of like they have that local expertise for your certain soil type and your certain uh, weather conditions. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the species that are grown in, in eastern Nebraska, yeah. western Iowa, southeastern South Dakota. Well, my, my favorite is cereal rye, and uh, the reason for that is because it is tough, and it almost always makes it through the winter well. Uh, the other thing about it is cereal rye has this massive root system that will, uh, it'll do such a good job of breaking up any kind of compaction. You know, I haven't seen a lot of data on this yet, but my what I'm from what I'm seeing, it looks like cereal rye will do a better job of breaking up compaction than any kind of deep till equipment. And not only uh, will it do a better job, uh, it will also deposit that organic matter. Uh, cereal rye can go down five or six feet, depending. If you have a nice warm fall, you can get those roots down six, uh, six foot. Uh, and so cereal rye usually should be in the mix in eastern Nebraska. Uh, so again, winter wheat works well. The root system is good. It's probably not quite as aggressive as cereal rye, but it's still excellent. Uh, you know, depending, you know, if you're thinking about grazing, uh, you know, you might want to do wheat, you might want to do rye, just depending upon what the needs of your uh, livestock herd are. Uh, oats are always good. Uh, so you're going to, if you plant oats, so you're going to plant them in the fall and they will not overwinter. One of the best things about oats is uh, they work with uh, a fungi called mycorrhizal fungi that's in our soils. Mycorrhizal fungi is really good at taking inorganic uh, phosphorus that's in our soils and changing it over to a plant-available type of phosphorus. When we plant oats, uh, mycorrhizal fungi love the exudate or the stuff that comes off of the roots uh, on oat plants. So it's like we kind of superpower our, our uh, fungi population, our beneficial fungi population when we plant oats in the, in the fall. And that's whether you hay, hay that or not, uh, you get that. And that's one thing uh, that will help you see uh, uh, improved yields in the future, too, because our, our crops use so much phosphorus. Um, radishes are good. Radishes are good for breaking up compaction as well. They're very good for grazing. Uh, turnips are good as well. Uh, and then there's a whole list uh, of, uh, oh, we planted some African cabbage uh, on the college farm this last year, uh, we planted uh, some winter lentils. Uh, we planted some uh, other uh, lentil crops. 
or uh, legume, excuse me, legume uh, crops. Now, radishes and turnips work well to plant because they can take freezing temperatures for a while. But uh, uh, like red clover, uh, I mean, if you cut silage and, uh, you know, corn silage or sorghum silage and you go in there, red clo- like in September or the end of August, uh, red clover will work. Otherwise, the growing season is too short if you're doing it after soybeans or uh, for sure after corn. Uh, as you get further south towards the Kansas border, the number and types of species just really opens up uh, big, big time. But uh, there is a new uh, legume that came out this last year called, or it came out a couple of years ago, excuse me, called camelina. And that does overwinter. And we planted some of that uh, this last year in one of our cover crop fields. And so it was exciting to see it. It took off really good. We had some nice rains and uh, we even irrigated the field a couple of times. And so I'll be interested in seeing how well that overwinters. But from what I heard, it, it does really well. Um, NRCS recommended that we add that to our mix. And so that that's something, you know, check out at least, uh, you know, to see if you want to plant some of that. Um, again, there are so many different cover crops you can plant. Um, there's vet, different vetches you can grow. Uh, it just depends on your situation. One thing, though, if, I, if you're brand new to cover crops and you just really uh, want to have success with the easiest, most uh, least risk, uh, just plant some cereal rye. And then grow, you know, expand your options uh, after you get that one down. Well, thank you for taking time out of your day today to talk to me um, about cover crops. This is so much fun, I guess, <laughs> to talk about. This is something that I love, and, uh, and I am so passionate about agriculture and about restoring our soils. And, uh, and so it was so great to see you, too, again, Agnes. Thank you, uh, Mr. Noonan, for having time out of your day to talk to me. I really appreciate it. But I'm back in the studio with Whitney and Claire. What do you guys think cover crops are? So I'll go first. Um, my definition of cover crops is that well, it's a crop that you put on your field in like the off season. Um, and then you can like feed or put livestock out there or just um, kind of put nutrients back into the soil that may have been lost due to other crops. So that's what I'm pretty sure cover crops are. I'm not an expert though. <laughs> I would say the same thing, but cover crops you don't harvest on top of what you said, Claire. Okay, so sure, just copy my answer. <laughs> well, uh, that's wrong. Um, so cover crops are a way for uh, farmers to, after harvest or on fresh ground, you can plant a crop that will help benefit the soil and it'll protect the soil from erosion. And the thing is, though, you can harvest it. For example, um, a lot of people plant winter wheat and oats, and you can actually put cattle out on that during its growing season and then you could also bale it it depends on what you want to do with it um, a lot of people also leave it in their fields and then um, leave that as a nitrogen source but yeah a lot of people um, use cover crops as a way to help protect the soil from the um, wind especially in nebraska where <laughs> it's windy constantly almost we don't want a dust bowl part two <laughs> especially not in the mid 
mid Midwest, excuse me. Some other benefits, I guess, of cover crop. Um, it helps slow the velocity of from rainfall and snow melt. Um, especially with farmers putting fertilizers on their soil, it's really important that we don't let that go into the ditches or we don't let it go into um water runoffs because then our water supply is you know contaminated and that's not very good for any environment. It also helps. Uh, keep the soil moist. I know a lot of people don't like that word. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it helps keep water in the soil, especially in drier environments or during like a drought season. Uh, cover crops are able to help uh, cover the soil. So of course the sun's not hitting directly on the soil. So it's not drying it out and you're not getting this hard cap on the top. But yeah. It's like a skincare routine for the ground. <laughs> yeah. Well, in a lot of people, they use turnips or radishes, which when you think about a turnip and a radish, it's a really large object that um, grows down pretty far, especially if you're not harvesting them, like at the prime time, if you will. Um, and it helps break up the soil uh, compaction, which can help, especially if you um, let cattle out on your fields on end rows and stuff where the tractor continuously hits the same spots. It can help break up a hard pan if it's closer to the surface. Which is really helpful because then your um, other crops like corn are able to get down farther into the soil and have more, more support. more of those nutrients. Yeah. I want to talk about what you said earlier. Um, so for those of you who don't know, um, cover crops are really good because they add nitrogen to the soil. And corn uses a, a heck ton of nitrogen to be able to grow. Um, so that's kind of the main, um, I guess, nutrient that takes for a lot of crops is nitrogen. Um, so that's why it's so important to put nitrogen back into the soil with cover crops is because it's a really big factor in how well your corn is going to grow. Right. And uh, you see a lot of people doing, um, to help with nitrogen, you'll see people doing rotations with like corn soybean because soybean is a legume which helps build the nitrogen in the soil, whereas corn uh, takes the nitrogen and other minerals and you know they switch off and on but you'll see a lot of times like people have a two-year rotation or a three-year rotation of corn soybean but when you're planting the cover crop you're able to shift more to like if you want it's not recommended but if, if you want you can plant just corn or you can just plant one type of crop um but it also like mr noonan said it um it helps um farmers especially if you have livestock it helps you get another crop that you can uh, harvest like you can use the turn them out in the winter and they have grass underneath the snow that they can get to or even turnips which is a pretty good um forage for cattle so it can lower your feeding costs then as well yeah for livestock yeah because um like uh if you have oats, you can let them go and graze on that. Or if it's uh, winter wheat, you can put them out there in early spring and they have um, some fresh grass, like the first grasses that come up, and it helps you lower your uh, feed bill. Um, but you can also hay it, and then you have some early hay or you have some late hay. So um, I know obviously you're going to consult like an agronomist or your salesperson to see which crop works best for you, but do you guys know if there's like a specific like crop to specific livestock that works better or um, do you guys know anything about that? Uh, around my part in south central Nebraska, we typically do winter wheat or turnips for cattle if we're putting them on stocks or cropland. Um, but other than that, about it for my area, how about you, Agnes? So, yes, of course it depends. Like, if you're having dairy versus beef, you're going to want something that's more for their diet because they have 
very different diets. But around here, yeah, it's mostly cattle that you'll see turned out on the cover crops. But a lot of people use different crops, like if they hay it or if they harvest the, you know, um, crop, like seed or whatever, then yes, also, because a lot of people use um, uh, camelina, which uh, Mr. Noonan mentioned. Um, a lot of people use that for pork or swine, and then a lot of people use the other, like, grasses and type, and, like, um, triticale, wheat, oats. If they harvest that, like, oats usually goes for horses or even cattle at times, and so does wheat. Um, I actually did look up the triticale with Whitney off to the side, and um, people actually use triticale, which is a cross of wheat and rye, um, and they, some people use that as, like, a substitute for wheat or rye, um, this like seed flour which was really interesting to me and like it, it says um, what was it? it it tastes like a a light rye yeah so when you harvest cover crops can you sell them as well a lot of times you can but a lot of times when people are using cover crops they're not letting it go to maturity where you could harvest it usually it's just like cutting it for hay which then you could sell the hay product like winter wheat would be the exception but otherwise, yeah, you're not letting it get that far because by that time you're wanting to plant your soybeans or your whatever, corn, alfalfa, whatever else you're planting there. Um, another question. Do you guys think that cover crops are more beneficial to farmers with both livestock and kind of crop rotations or just one or the other? I would say both because um, in my area there's a lot. Of people that do both, they use the cover crops just for crop rotation, but also for um, putting cattle out on, on on a field. So it'd be beneficial for both, in my opinion. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Um, especially if you're wanting to improve your soil, um, it's really something to look into, other than just putting fertilizers and pesticides on, because. Again, they, they, it helps with weed suppression, too. Like, it's not just um, helping protect or build soil nutrients. It's helping you protect your crops from being taken over by weeds. I think a lot of the first-generation farmers are noticing that a lot of the first-generation farmers are using cover crops to build up their soil um, and, I want to say, uh, recover their land to what it was before all the nutrients was drained. Instead of using excesses of fertilizer or other applications. So could you argue, since um, that's a first-generation farmer thing, could you argue that that's because they're more um, schooled or educated about it, that they are able to do that? Or would you argue that it's because they've been told to do that by um, another family member or the person that came before them? I don't know if I would say it's more of education I think it's more just because well maybe it is education partly because you're seeing that um you know research says that it's better and research says that um it helps build up the soil and research says this and that and I think um when we're seeing these younger farmers come in a lot of them are taking classes and a lot of them are trying to improve the environment because we as farmers get a lot of backlash for harming the environment when that's not something you want, that because, again, if you want people in the future to farm your land, which, whether that's your great-grandkids or whoever else, you want that soil to be good because 
uh, if it's bad, you can't make a profit. You can't um, feed America, if you will. So where did, like, the concept or thought of cover crops originate from? Like, who came up with the idea? Um, I would say probably George Washington Carver. He is known for his techniques in cover crop. He was born into slavery in 1864, and after he grew up, he worked with um, experiments with, like, natural pesticides, fungicides, and soil conditioners because uh, he was too, like, frail to work in the field, so he did this instead to, you know, make a living. Um, And so then the local farmers in the area nicknamed him the plant doctor because of those experiments. Is George Washington Carver the peanut butter guy? (laughs) He he grew (laughs) peanuts, yes. He, He... uh, he grew peanuts as a a cover crop or a way to help the soil. I did not know that. That is so cool. <laughs> um, but I would say, obviously, he's not the only one that came up with that concept. But being that he was in the South, um, especially during those times mm-hmm. of slavery and stuff, um, people didn't really know about soil conservation or soil management. And, you know, their main focus was, I got to earn the biggest buck. Which, I mean, you can argue that that's still the fact today. It's just that we are taking care of the soil to make a bigger buck. But Capitalism, am I right? <laughs> right. But um, uh, the, so- the soils were poor because we weren't taking care of them. And he figured out a way to um, make it more accessible, I guess. Carver, uh, his contribution to ag was... The adoption of crop rotation techniques, which led to a surplus in peanuts and, like, non-cotton products in the South. So he spent his time trying to find alternative uses of these products. So um, some byproducts that he uh, created was, like, flour and vinegar from sweet potatoes, um, like, non-edible products, uh, stains, dyes, paints, inks, etc. And he was known as the peanut man, Claire, uh, because... He developed over 300 different products from peanuts like milk, Worcestershire sauce, oil, paper, soaps, um, like peanut-based medicines, etc. Worcestershire sauce is made of peanuts? It's a It's an ingredient. ingredient. <laughs> Claire's mind is blown. My mind is blown. <laughs> so I got all those facts from history.com. So the 1900s recipe for Worcestershire sauce contained peanuts, but now the mainstream, like, Lee and Pepperin's Worcestershire sauce does not. But with some research, there are homemade recipes that have peanut oil in it. Yeah, they include peanut oil, which... And where did you get the information about George Washington Carver, Whitney? Um, A lot of the information was based off of history.com, and it's... Part of an article wrote for the Wayne Stater on the college campus. Awesome. Yeah. I, some of what I read about George Washington Garver was from, um, like, the Smith, Smithsonian Magazine, you know, natural, nat- natural, National Geographic Magazine and stuff. But. I just think it's interesting that I've only ever associated him with, like, peanut butter, and yet there's all these major agricultural breakthroughs that he's also credited with, so... Obviously, it's something to think about during Black History Month, why we only know him or associate him with that one invention rather than all of these big breakthroughs. Right. Yeah. Well, I think this 
part of that too is though is like there there were other people it's just um uh, he's one of the more uh, he focused more on it i guess because uh especially with peanuts like he was growing peanuts and then he was coming up with all these <laughs> ingredients and stuff that you can Byproducts, use. Byproducts. Byproducts. Yep. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, which I kind of, you know, stuff gets put to the side when your focus point is on one thing. And Carver got the idea to use these cover crops um, since cotton had depleted the nutrients in the soil. He took nitrogen fixing crops like, you know, peanuts, soybeans, sweet potatoes, etc. to restore the soil's yielding potentials to, you know, have a better crop season for next year. Makes sense. So on the topic of cover crops, these two um, things kind of go along with it. We want to talk a little bit about buffer crops and then just doing your yard in like native grasses or the native landscape because those are both really beneficial to both um, conservation and the idea of like less pollution and then more efficient pollination for farming, for agriculture, and just for the environment in general. So who wants to tell us a little bit about buffer crops to start off with? Okay, so buffer strips, or another name is uh, conservation buffers. Uh, the, they're small areas of strips of land or um, small areas uh, in permanent vegetation. So a lot of times you'll see it on like banks of creeks or um, ditches, I guess, would be kind of another example that like a steep ditch, it would be there. Um a lot of times these buffers are strategically placed just to mitigate uh, sediment movement so you're not seeing as much soil erosion, especially up north of where I live in Cedar County. Um, there's a lot of like shale and you'll see people um, putting in these buffer strips to help, you know, prevent the shale from breaking off or even like sandy areas. You'll see a lot of, um, uh, they're not called buffer strips, they're... Um, Plateaus. Mm -hmm. Sorry, they're plateaus, and they have um, kind of a like a buffer strip on the end of them, so that help prevent the soil from creating the hill again. So I know me and Whitney learned a little bit about this. Um, we went to um, the Ag Women's Conference for our um, Agricultural Communicators of Tomorrow Club, which we had talked about a couple of episodes ago. Um, so basically, the gal who explained it, she was from the Pheasants Forever group, and she was explaining um, just how it's kind of a better transition to go from field to through the buffer crops to the ditch rather than just a steep cutoff because that is kind of counterproductive. Right. And these buffer strips also, when they're allowed to um, grow tall grasses, they also house um, wildlife. So you see a lot of times in these buffer strips, you'll see pheasants, you'll see um, a lot of uh, quail are nesting um, birds, birds that nest in the grasses. You'll see um, even meadowlarks and stuff like that um, because it's a natural habitat for them. Uh, you'll even see a lot of times if they're close to water, you'll see uh, raccoons or foxes living in the side of them um, just because, yeah, it's a good place for them to pull up during the night or during the day. I would also say along with that um, is, again, the idea of conservation and, you know, improving wildlife because obviously those species aren't super endangered, but they still need a place to live. And when you kind of run them out of home or overhunt, you want the populations to be able to bounce back pretty quickly and maintain themselves. So I would definitely say that's a benefit to having these buffer strips. Yeah, especially like like with pheasants and stuff, we've been seeing less of them in 
the wild, if you will, or naturally occurring. You'll see a lot of time. there's a lot of programs that raise pheasants in captivity to release them into the wild, and especially during hunting season. People like to hunt pheasant or quail, and we need a way to help these species come back without the help of humans. Like, it's, it's good that we're helping them come back, don't get me wrong, but it would be better if they were able to naturally reproduce. reproduce. Especially, like, with pheasants, like, they're laying eggs during a, like, hanging season, right? So, you're not able to, like, people are running over their nests, or they're running over the chicks when they're bailing. And, you know, these buffer strips allow them an area that is safe from equipment. As part of a member of several conservation groups, like Pheasants Forever and Quails Forever and, like, Ducks and and so on... These buffer strips that are being um, like mainstreamed programs um, are really helping conservation efforts. I know Pheasants Forever does a lot of paid work with farmers and such to transition their cropland to conservation land, partial conservation to full conservation, like Claire had mentioned earlier. Another thing, too, Mr. Noonan said with the cover crops. You can also get help to like build buffer strips and cover crops through the NRDA, like mm-hmm. your area, um, if that's something you're interested in and like helping concert, or excuse me, helping conserve the environment or natural resources or anything, you can contact your NRD um, and get, you know, pamphlets, information. They'll even help you set it up because there's programs available. They'll help you set up, um, get you on the right track anyway. Same with Pheasants Forever. They have several habitat programs set up in place for people to learn about and implement into their lifestyle. Just a step, just contact the local, your local chapter to get information or to be contact with, you know, even the state chapter. And then another thing that the gal talked about at the presentation was also kind of just landscaping, not necessarily even your farm, but just like the yard that your house is on having natural grasses instead of like super landscaped grass that needs a lot of watering and wastes a lot of resources having natural grasses is super helpful because a natural grasses will, like are natural to this environment so they don't native, need a, they don't native need grasses a, yes sorry that's, <laughs> that's what i meant <laughs> i'm tired native grasses um they're from here and Obviously, those a lot of those were kind of dug out and thrown during the whole um, homesteading period, which is kind of unfortunate because they're really good. Well, they're they're really good because they're native to this environment, so they're used to this environment. Uh, especially like during seasons of drought, they're able to withstand that drought. They're adapted yes. to our yes. unique environment of Nebraska. Right, even uh, during flooding or whatever. Exactly, and along with that, um, the animals that live in those environments, like we were talking about earlier, um, even like bee populations, in order to pollinate, you can have wildflowers in with it so that bee populations can bounce back and then therefore they're going to pollinate all of those plants and the whole environment is going to benefit from that as well. And then also in like dry environments, I know we're not, a desert here in Nebraska, but in places like Arizona or Nevada, it's more beneficial to have like those rocky yards. I don't know what they're called. There's a name for it. But like, you know, the yards that have like cactuses and rocks in them rather than like grass you have to water, that's just gonna make more sense because then you're not wasting water, especially in a place that doesn't have a lot of water to begin with. Right. And I, I'm 
going, like, taking that and taking it back to cover crops, cover crops are helping a lot in those areas, like, um, where, especially in Arizona, where it's closer to where they get a lot of rainfall, and they're slowly able to, like, keep increasing that uh, grass area because they're using native grasses, they're using cover crops, and they're helping um, just reestablish the grasses that were there and helping the environment retain water and helping prevent these huge dust storms that, you know, are pretty devastating, especially like we saw during the Dust Bowl. But again, that was like a learning curve because people didn't, people didn't realize that tearing up all that grass and plowing the dirt was going to cause that. They just did it because they thought it was going to benefit them you know, making money and being productive, whereas it really backfired because they didn't understand the consequences of doing that. Like, if one person did it, I mean, it probably wouldn't have been awful, but since everyone did it, it created a major environmental disaster. But that's something that I'm really glad about that's, like, this generation of farmers is achieving. We're helping to try and keep the soil as pristine as we can or even um, not keeping it pristine but helping it get back to its original um potential yeah its original potential and even taking it farther and making it the best it can be because um we want future people to be able to farm your land because if our soil isn't good then you no one's gonna live there it's just gonna turn into a field of weeds and noxious weeds and it's not gonna be great we have to have have the good soil for better crop yield to feed the ever-growing population of the world. And as the population grows, uh, cropland is being turned into land for homes. And so, therefore, we got to really utilize our small spaces for crops. Right. And that's where we're seeing, you know, an increase of people using GMOs and people, especially when we're um, people are going to organic farming, it's taking up more land because, you know, you aren't supposed to use certain chemicals or pesticides. Sure, they're still using some, but they're having to plant um, a larger area to get the same amount of product that um, traditional, if you will, traditional farmers are using. Along with that, though, like not only the mass production, but also the longevity of how long those places are going to be be able to produce those high yielding places has a lot to do with how you take care of that land. You have to be mindful that you need to put the nutrients back in the soil and take care of the soil and be able to have a water source and have those fields that livestock can, you know, be on and be fed well and be taken care of because otherwise it's, you're not going to get anything out of it in the long run. It's going to backfire and then you're going to have nothing but a piece of used up land that is useless at this point. Well, and the thing, especially like in the Northeast here, we're, we're mainly focused on crop production, right? Even like we still have beef um, feedlots and stuff like that, but a lot of our income is coming from crops, uh, especially when you look at um, corn versus soybeans or even just corn and soybeans versus hay. We're seeing that, um, especially like after the flood, Um, and there was a bunch of sand washed up into fields and a lot of debris. Those fields weren't doing very good the first year, and they're slowly coming back because their farmers are putting a lot of effort into trying to... Rejuvenate it. Yeah, rejuvenate it, try and get some of the sand off. 
and try and get, um, you know, the chemicals that were displaced. I mean, it's just like getting injured and going to the hospital. Like, you're not going to recover in a day. It's going to take time to, you know, for the broken bone to, you know, stitch itself back together. It takes time and it takes care to, to heal. Right. You but, can't just leave a broken bone broken. You you got to fix it. Yeah. It's like these croplands that are nutrient deficient. You got to fix them. Right. And I think hopefully a lot more people will realize that there's other options other than just chemicals um, and like liquid fertilizers. And sure, those are great, especially if your soil is really depleted and you're really having to try to, you know, bring it back from the brink. But... um. It's just, it's, I don't know, more environmentally friendly to use cover crops and to use a crop uh, rotational system, especially um, with benefiting, uh, you know, native species. And especially with honeybees, we're trying to um, bring them back from the endangered list um, just because we used a lot of pesticides to kill, you know, milkweed, which was really important to monarch uh, butterfly species. And now we don't see monarchs hardly at all. And sure, there's there's a lot of conservation going back into, you know, reintroducing milkweed into ditches and stuff. But we're going to have to face our fear of weeds, I guess, in our fields. For the record, milkweed does not actually have milk in it. Please don't drink it. I, I know don't. someone who did that. And I was like, no. Oh, no. No, man. Get your, get your milk from cows or almonds. Don't get it from milkweeds. There's plenty of other options to look for milk than milkweed. So again, talking about cover crops, um, a good idea is to consult with an agronomist because um, they're going to be able to test the soil and kind of tell you a good idea about what you need, like Mr. Noonan. Yeah, Mr. <laughs> Noonan. I'm so sorry. Mr. Right. Noonan. Um, he is an agronomist, correct, Agnes? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, he would be a good person to consult. And there's, like, degree programs, too, if you're interested in that. Um, yeah, that's another thing. Like, take a, a, a class at a community college. That's a good idea for first-generation farmers. I know a lot of them go to school for agronomy, even for a couple of years, because it, it really helps them understand how to care for the soil and, yeah. you know... Well, you can even just take a couple classes. Like, you don't have to get a degree. Just mm -hmm. take a couple classes in, um, uh, let's see, I had forages. You can take a class in soil science, and those will really benefit you as a farmer, um, especially a, a crop farmer, and learning how to take care of your soils and learning about soil structure and learning about the nutrients in the soil and how to um, help the good bacteria and just growing crops in general and getting the best bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of the younger farmers are also um, majoring in agribusiness. Yeah. I know uh, <laughs> I had a couple classmates at Northeast that uh, they just graduated in December because they got a degree in agribusiness because it's a good thing to have along with, you know, animal science or a, an agronomy degree because then you can help your own finances. You have a better understanding of how to, you know. Do business. Yeah, yeah. do business, uh, market and everything like that. I would also encourage like any young people who have farms or have families um, that own farms to encourage those people to kind of look into having cover crops and doing the buffer strips because 
Um, a lot of times some people may not know about it or may not know how it works. So again, reach out to the organizations that do know how it works because a lot of times they might work with you even financially to be able to work out a program because conservation is a really important thing. And they want to do as much as possible to, you know, benefit the soil as well as benefit those farmers by um, allowing them access to be able to implement these things. I know a lot of programs um, that we've talked about have financial aid available for farmers to get into this program of um, buffers and cover crops. So, Well, and uh, um, especially for uh, like people in FFA age or 4-H age, there's a lot of like different competitions that you can do. Um, especially in FFA, like there's soil judging and then there's natural resources and agronomy. I did ag sales where we had to sell cover crops. (laughs) So even the other ones are sometimes cover crop related. I did land judging and livestock judging during FFA. But um, I I would really encourage people to look into it, Um, even if it's not something like you plan for the future. Especially if you're like a livestock farmer and you're looking for another way to get hay for the fall. Um, I would really look into cover crops because um, as we learned, especially after the flood, we can always use some more hay. Especially in this area. Even if you um, just turn around and sell it, you know, it's an extra profit in your back pocket. You know, and especially like if there's a hard winter, you know, long winter, it's good to have extra hay on hand. Um, You can always, you know turn around and always put it back as fertilizer on your soil. And again, you don't have to do this like all in one huge leap. You can take it like one acre at a time, like try it on one, see how it works for you, adjust how you need to, and then continue going because you're not going to get it right the first time. It's going to take, it's a learning process. It's going to take a couple of times, a couple of years to be able to get used to the rotation and what works, what doesn't work, um, what livestock you're going to put on there. Um, even for buffer strips, like which plants, plants yeah. yeah, which plants <laughs> you want to be, yeah, which plants you want to transition down to. So it's again working with people who are experts who know what's going on, making a plan, and then being able to follow through and see the benefits that come along with that. Right, and um, even asking your neighbor if they do it, asking your ask them. Um, your uh, extension office. I know they always have information ready for you. Or um, I know a lot of professors at uh, colleges would be willing to help you, especially I'll put Mr. Noonan's email at the end in the credits because he offered for you to email him. And, you know, he's a really great guy to get in contact with. He He's willing to help you get into, if not learn a little bit more about cover crops and it never hurts to know just the information Mm -hmm. even if you're not a farmer or a conservationist just knowing about cover crops and all this we've been talking about is beneficial to you right like you said earlier about cover crops with hay um for excess use for off months um We've been experiencing some very harsh winter weather lately, wouldn't you say? Yeah, um, especially, uh, you know, uh, what, today this or this morning was negative 26 here. Yep. And with the wind chill tomorrow, it's supposed to be, what, negative 40? Oh, oh that's so cool. Yeah, that's y'all like didn't Canada. hear about that one? <laughs> well, I know right now Texas is, um, I feel bad for them. I do. 
but it, I can't not laugh about it. Uh, just because they haven't experienced it, but they're having snow. Uh, I feel really bad because a lot of people's electricity is shut off right now down there. And they don't know how to handle this weather, especially with their livestock, because a lot of them are um, calving out right now. But again, like going back to hay, it's important to have those, I don't know, stockpiles. And it's important to be prepared for having rough winters and a good way to I guess predict a rough winter is to look at the farmer's almanac because oh, yeah. they are extremely accurate and they're they have to have like some sort of like profit or something <laughs> because they never miss like I that is some a, accurate predictions well, over there. I, I would like to throw out um history repeats itself and weather is no exception. Absolutely. Um I mean the last time we saw this type of winter i would say was probably what 2011 where we had uh, especially up in the northeast here we had a blizzard that uh, i mean it dropped a couple feet of snow on us and then we had cold which uh, my dad reminds me that this is not the coldest nebraska has been i you know global warming has really affected the midwest and um I mean, this is the coldest it's been in a long time, but it's not. This is also a lot more snow than we've had in the past couple years. Yeah. It's like, I don't remember this much snow since I was probably 10. Yeah. And I remember that because there was a gal who got stuff on the road, and my brother and dad went to dig her out, and then she brought us popcorn. So that worked out. (laughs) But I think a lot of people forget that, that farmers have their own community too. Like, um, especially like the fires in California, you saw a lot of people taking hay over there and helping people get their livestock out. You saw um, ex- in Texas when there was, um, I think, flooding down there, flooding or um, fires down there. You had farmers down there like, hey, you can come to my house, bring your horses. I have a barn. I have hay. And you see a lot of that community um, come out when it's most needed, I would say. We need to show it more, but, you know, it's nice to know that you have other people that have your back. Yeah. Um, If you would like to get in contact with um, Professor Robert Noonan at Northeast Community College, his email is robert at northeast.edu r-o-b-e-r-t at northeast.edu um so if you have any questions um go ahead and uh ask him uh just you know make sure uh to mention the podcast or you heard it from the podcast so that he knows where you're coming from but that's going to be the end of this week's podcast i'm agnes kurtzels i am whitney winter and my name is claire horning and thank you for tuning in This podcast was created by Agnes Kurtzels, Claire Horning, and Whitney Winter as part of Radio Production Workshop at Wayne State College. Tune in on Thursdays at 6 p.m. for more Ag Knowledge. Listen to KWSC 91.9 The Cat on thecat.wsc.edu. Previous episodes can be found on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. New episodes are released on Fridays to these and other platforms. Music is Solo Acoustic Guitar by Jason Shaw, found on freemusicarchive.org. The song was edited for the use of this podcast.